1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new sponsor we've got on the show. I'm excited about this sponsor. It's Harry's. And here's why I'm excited. I do not like shaving. Shaving is not fun. I'm lazy. But also razor blades are so expensive. Like anytime I go to the drugstore and you got to go like get the guy to come over and unlock the case and then you get the ones you want and it's like $40 for six of them somehow and it doesn't make any sense because it's just a little piece of metal. Harry's is here to solve that problem. They've got great razor blades at seriously affordable prices. I've been using these razors, so have Evan and Aaron. and I gotta tell you, uh, we're looking pretty good. These Harry's razors, they give you a good clean shave, and if you wanna try them yourself, you should use the starter kit. It's a razor, like a handle, three razor blades, and uh, a tube of Harry's fantastic shaving cream. It's just 15 bucks, and that's such a good deal that Harry's doesn't normally like to discount their stuff, but for our listeners, they're willing to give 5 bucks off if you use the promo code LONGFORM, so go to harrys.com, that's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, use the promo code LONGFORM, start shaving better. Thanks, Harrys. Here's the show.
2: Hello. Welcome back, Aaron Lamer. Hey. How's that iced coffee? I won't drink it on, uh, on air, if that's <laughs> what you're asking. I never would. <laughs> I wouldn't even consider it. Aaron's back. Good to have um, you back, Aaron. Yeah, what's been going on in, in my absence, guys? Uh, tons of stuff. Too much
1: to get into, but yeah, the uh, episode this week yeah. is with Ben Smith.
2: Oh, of BuzzFeed.
1: Ben Smith, editor in chief of BuzzFeed, longtime political reporter before that, uh, and we talked about like political horse trading. He also started like the first New York City political blog. What, was at, what what
2: New York City era was that?
1: Like uh, oh five oh six. Mm. Yeah, and then uh, he was like at Politico, super early days of Politico. And then, obviously, has been at BuzzFeed in the early days of that as well. So it's a big operation now. Yeah, yeah. It's like it has grown under him. He started in 2012. He started like with the 2012 election. So we talked a lot about what those last four years have been like, and how much he misses political reporting, and lots of good stuff. Smart guy.
2: We're in kind of the uh, the feast end of the feast famine political reporting cycle. Yes, for sure. A lot, a lot of good politics stuff out there at the moment. Did do they acknowledge? Um, I know that BuzzFeed ran a story about. Um, sort of mocking Trump's pre- presidential ambitions, like a couple of years before. Do they acknowledge that as a potential cause for Trump's run?
1: Yeah, I think like uh, <laughs> many people think that it was that McKay Coppins piece. The guy who set it up, like Trump's guy who got set who set it up, got fired. Trump fired him, and there is definitely a potential narrative that that story drove him so fucking crazy that he
2: decided to finally run. We should get we should get McKay Coffins on here to talk about that too. <laughs> Blame BuzzFeed. <laughs> Blame BuzzFeed. Like McKay Coffins will probably die if pre- if Trump gets elected, right? <laughs> <laughs> Come on the show, McKay. We'll ask you. Um, how about sponsors?
1: Uh, I got a podcast recommendation for you guys. It's called Reveal. And each episode takes us into the hidden world or exposes a problem that most people know nothing about. The reporters spend weeks, sometimes months or years, getting to the bottom of a story. Along the way, they come across the most intriguing characters. Sometimes they're good guys. Sometimes they're bad. But by the end, they've, wait for it, revealed what's going on and who's to blame. Check it out. You can
2: find Reveal on any local public radio station, iTunes, anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm going to check that out. I'm also looking forward to uh, Evan revealing what happens in part two of Mastermind. Mm-hmm. Already up. Go oh, read it. <laughs> did, did not know that. It's available to you right now. <laughs> to be fair, I had a discussion with Evan about that like five minutes ago where he did not mention that part two was available. Blame Evan. I blame Evan. Blame McKay. Blame Evan. I blame all of you. Uh, who wouldn't you blame, though?
1: Who do I, you hold in the never, highest of scenes? I would
2: never blame MailChimp because when they say they're going to deliver, they, they deliver. Uh, MailChimp, it's simply the best way uh, to run your businesses. email. Whatever your needs are, they've got you covered, whether you're just getting a list off the ground or you have tens of thousands of subscribers. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Max with Ben Smith from BuzzFeed.
1: Do you have any questions for me before we start?
3: If I like want to retract something, how do you feel about that?
1: Uh, I feel great about it in the moment. That's totally fine. I'm less interested in like negotiating about it afterwards.
3: So if I say like "ack," I said that wrong. Could you edit that out and let me say it again? A thousand percent. Yeah. Okay, but I should. But I won't. But I should do it in the flow. If, you, I, if and you, that's not my gig. I'm not like. Li- I'm not. If, l- if you call me tomorrow and, and, say, and hey, say, "Hey, there's this thing that thing I said." So I would never ask you to edit this after the fact, and in fact, I've never asked anybody to edit anything after the fact, with one exception, which was when I was, um, it was I was, it was must have been two thousand and seven, pretty early on at Politico, and Glenn Greenwald was convinced that we were a right wing conspiracy, <laughs> and he and I, and I unwisely did a blogging, and he had been fighting on the blogs about it, and did a blogging heads debate, and in the debate, one of Glenn's proof points was that the guy who owned uh, Politico, uh, Joe Albritton was somehow in his mind connected to the CIA. And he, in fact, ran Riggs Bank, which was this kind of bank that had some shady connections and was, did, I think, things with Pinochet and stuff. And I said, Glenn, that may all be true, but you know it's his son, Robert, who runs the company. Joe is dead. And we moved on from there. I thought that was a pretty good rebuttal. And we moved on from there. And after the show, I Googled Joe Albright and it turned out that he was not, in fact, dead, oh, but, no. but was, in fact, the chairman of the company for which I worked. <laughs> um, he has since passed away. But I then called Glenn and said you know I know that we are enemies and but I think maybe I'll get fired and would you mind if I just like insert an error because it was a thing where you, we each would upload our side of the video and then they would sync them would you would you mind if I inserted an error here and kind of saved myself like an, and I, I think I did have to t- I did tell my editors who I think were pained at the, at this but yeah and Glenn who is, I wrote this recently, I mean, he's he's a huge asshole on the internet and incredibly gracious in person, was lovely and gracious about it and thought it was, you know, hilarious. <laughs> all right. Well, you can definitely, if you mourn anyone
1: who's still alive in this conversation, we'll edit that out. That's fine. That's that's all I ask. That's my only condition. <laughs> that's a fair game. Um, ben uh, Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me on. I feel like it's going to be hard for you to turn off your phone. You strike me as someone who who maybe it's going to be difficult to turn off
3: your phone. I've been trying hard over the last several years to be better about that with the help of my kids. So I think I'll be all right. Are you good about it now? I'm not good about it, but I do recognize that (laughs) that I have a problem. (laughs) But I feel like, yeah, you mean you just must be, that thing just must be like uh, alive all the time, just like bouncing and dinging all the time. I get a lot of email. You get a lot of (laughs) That is kind of what I'm saying. Although also, I mean, I think when I started at BuzzFeed, I felt like I was like running the thing off my phone to some degree and editing stuff and emailing people all the time. And now we have so many strong editors and reporters, and I can like, go away fishing for a week and the place is fine. It's got to feel nice. Scary, <laughs> yeah. but nice. It's scary to
1: be like uh, not totally vital all the time. To, yeah, to not really be in charge, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to talk to you about being in charge of BuzzFeed, but uh, since this is a show ostensibly about writing, I feel like we should at least start with writing. All right, so you're running this thing. You're getting all these emails. You are making all these decisions all the time. You're hiring people, strategy,
3: all that stuff. How do you decide when to write? I mean, I, I guess I feel like if I don't I, if I don't have bylines that I might not exist. I remember when I was working my first gig at the New York in New York at the New York Sun. This um, reporter once said to me, "You know, the way I feel is no byline, no me." Which is the out. You know, I mean, there's that line about journalists being shy egomaniacs, and it's such a egocentric thing to say. And yet, I do. I do. If I don't write for a while, I start to get a little twitchy. So maybe that—I mean, that's just part of because I've been doing it for so long. And All I think right. I always, as a reporter for a long time, kind of tried to run at two speeds. You know, I'd be running the blog at this very high speed, and then always try to have a back burner project. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, you know, as a reporter in general, like most of what we deal in is ephemera, and I love that. I mean, that's the business, and I don't think—I think, that, think that's—I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, in fact, I think that's a plus and something that you have to sort of. That, that shapes how you succeed at the job by, because you realize that this thing you're writing is about this moment and right now it's and, and about its place in the conversation. Right. It's not some piece of art to hang on the wall. Right. I think it's true of most journalism. And I think like the more you realize it, the more effective you're going to be most of the time. The more you can keep that in mind, the better. Is that
1: because the stakes aren't as high as they seem in the moment or because if you can realize that, like, the conversation's going to change tomorrow and you're going to be a part of that then you might as well not worry about it very much.
3: No, I think the stakes are higher in the moment. I mean, like, I think if you want to, like, paint a beautiful thing and hang it on the wall, the stakes are actually pretty low. Mm -hmm. Whereas the stakes in terms of what will this piece do, you know, in terms of affecting people's lives, affecting politics, affecting the people you're covering, are usually higher than its aesthetic qualities. So since the stakes are higher, it's good to remember that it's going to all change? Well, I think, no, it's more that it's important to know what the stakes are. Like mm-hmm. the stakes are about what this what this article is going to do, who it's going to affect. The stakes are not about whether you used an Oxford comma or not. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, I feel like uh, I was reading back through a bunch of uh,
3: your sort of early BuzzFeed interviews
1: and stuff, and there was one where you basically said like Twitter was your copy editor for a while.
3: Oh, man. Shawnee Hilton, among other people, really shut that down. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, think, I do think that clean copy is one of the ways that you... Communicate seriousness and authority, Mm -hmm. and that I I was a little slow to catch on to that, and did for a while say to people, "Yeah, Twitter—it's great. They're free. They volunteer. They catch your errors." That was that was oversimplified. (laughs) Because I I had written a blog that I think was known among other things for its typos, and I was always grateful to readers when they said, "Hey, asshole, you spelled this (laughs) word wrong." I was like, "Thanks." I admire your uh, your not worrying about that. Every time we get an email about a,
1: a typo on the site, it's like. Three hours of shame. Like die a little, for me. Yeah. Well, We only like put like eleven words on the website every day. So if we get one of them wrong, right. that's kind of. A and bar. we put, you
3: know, and we now publish really beautifully crafted features and investigations that have been. We have an amazing copy chief. We're getting down the weeds here on typos. I, <laughs> I, um, I get a little defensive. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, so that I understand, right? Like you were writing all the time for several years, and the idea of not writing at all makes you twitchy, break out in hives, but why do you decide to write the stuff that you write? So, like, I went back and looked through, like, just scrolled through your author page. And in the last couple of years, there's kind of... It felt to me like there's sort of, like, three kinds of things you've been written, writing. One of them is scoops. Just, like, flat-out scoops, like the Uber one. You were at some dinner where... Emile Michael, he's a senior executive. Yeah, Uber. and basically said they're going to start going after journalists. You broke the still-off-the-record... Trump conversation at the Times, uh, so that's one kind. Is like classic Ben Smith scoops. Like those are still coming along. and You're still doing those, and then you've been writing a lot about the industry. I feel like, like uh, you wrote a piece about like what clickbait actually is. Uh, there was a like sort of thick piece about the state of long form, which we could talk about or not talk about, and the diversity policy you wrote, which I think is actually. Uh, really fabulous, and I would like to talk about more. And then there's this other kind of story which we've linked to on long form. It struck me that you've written a, a couple of really long reported stories where you seem like you spent a lot of time on kind of lost men.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting because I've noticed I've noticed that about what I write about too. And thought right. oh, I should probably write about some different things. <laughs> well, you wrote about yeah, like Mickey Kaus, who was like a, a sort of
1: colleague of yours in the political blogosphere when that was more of a thing, and then.
3: Tom Lehrer, who are both kind of like people who fell off the earth. People, yeah, people whose work I loved, who, yeah. fe- who sort of fell off the earth. I wrote a piece about um, two uh, Palestinian, or not in both Palestinian, but two Arab writers, um, Hussein Abish and Ali Abunima, who I, th- I think in some ways a similar vein, who are these brilliant intellectuals who have devoted themselves to destroying each other. I was interested in why those were the stories that you were like okay this i'm going to carve time out of my crazy life to go and try and figure this out yeah i I think i've always had like two tracks like a fast track and a slow one and i think if you look at the features i did at politico um you'd probably find some more i mean i think there is a range but i i wrote a piece that i still really love about richard ben kramer that was maybe a little in that vein yeah this sort of nostalgic uh kind of piece about writers who I love I, I don't yeah I don't know I, maybe it's just sort of that but they do seem a little cookie cutter so maybe I need to find something new to write about Oh, I don't think it's cookie cutter I mean like
1: one of the things that has come through on this show over and over again is like people are often writing stories that help them figure out something they're trying the to figure all out all
3: journalism is autobiography or, yeah, or, exactly. al, or alternately therapy <laughs> yeah so i guess i was wondering like <laughs> i mean it kind of made me think like uh is this guy like worried about falling off the face of the earth oh god i definitely um i mean i i don't th- i don't so much worried but i mean journalism is just notoriously a difficult profession to grow old and mm-hmm. i mean i'm not sure it's a fear or a um, what's the opposite of a fear aspiration <laughs> to just totally drop off the grid <laughs> fantasy uh how old are you now 39? 39. 39. All of the profiles of you that I also read before we talked, they're all like, boy, wonder. Yeah, you know, the Times used that headline, on it, and I thought, man, that's the last time anybody's ever going to call me that. Because <laughs> for a long time in your career, and I tell, I've always tell this to our like young reporters who are being like in an article about young reporters and feel a little patronized by it, and I'm always like, no, no, no like that ends. <laughs> I mean, the only thing worse than being kind of patronized is like a wonderkind is when you're not. Yes, yeah, totally. Have you, do you feel like... Um... That transition is is working out all right for you. Or are you like, a... I, I felt like the whole thing like it's not that weird that you might be an editor in your late thirties. <laughs> like that doesn't seem that sort of. I don't think that I really count as a Wonderkind. Was that? But that that was perfectly easy for you to to uh, move post Wonderkind. I don't know. I never really thought about it much. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you miss reporting? Yeah, I love reporting, and I, I mean I still do it some. Right. But I always like whenever I get a chance, I love to. And you know. I had a lot of fun reporting out that Times tape thing. I guess that's kind of what I was interested in because, like, those scoop ones, they are exactly the kind
1: of work that you were doing before BuzzFeed. And the ones that you have reported out seem to have made a huge dent. So, like, you must, on some level, know, like, well, this one's really worth going for.
3: Yeah. I, I, yes. I mean, I do think I have a pretty good instinct <laughs> for if you hear some little interesting bit of gossip, whether it's maybe more than an interesting bit of gossip or if somebody says something to you that they might have thought it was off record but wasn't whether mm-hmm. it's whether it's news or not being able to do that occasionally does that basically scratch the itch yeah i think it does and I, I mean i love the thing that i didn't really expect is i love working with reporters like younger reporters or older reporters and love sort of pitching in on stories and thinking about how to cover i mean I, this is stuff i'd never done before i'd never you know managed anyone or edited anyone and was surprised by how much i liked it do you think you're a good boss um I don't know. I think sometimes maybe I'm a little hyper aggressive. I definitely have been told I should not stand behind people and bounce <laughs> up and down on my and ca- like my toes while they're trying to file and look over their shoulders. <laughs> I talked to some people uh who work for you who will re- remain nameless,
1: but that was something that they brought up. It's like part of your management style is standing directly behind people. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. And and I think I'm not a good um I'm not really a good story editor. We have some really wonderful story editors. Steve Kandel is a mm-hmm. great, is really a great story editor in the sense of, and, and um, you know, Mark Schoof. A lot, there are a lot of people who are really just amazing story editors and I basically have two settings. Like I can either tweak your lead and like, I can either like torque up the lead and add a few typos in the first couple paragraphs or I can totally rewrite the story from scratch in my own voice and be like, and then hit publish before you've seen it. <laughs> um, but the thi- but I, but the whole thing of leaving notes in the margins and having a back and forth is something I never totally learned and I also don't I think after I get past 3000 words I start to lose a grasp of the structure of the story as mm-hmm. an editor I can write longer but it's and and so when I see Steve and Mark and Ariel and Shawnee Hilton like work on these longer stories I definitely like admire that is that not a muscle that you wanted to get in shape I mean I just not I guess it's something I've never real I've never I mean I have done some of it but it's not but I think it takes a lot of practice to get good at editing really long story, to get good at seeing the structure and sort of understanding the structure of longer stories and books. It's been four
1: years, right? Like you just hit yeah, your four-year anniversary. More, yeah. It's like high school, college. Like you're supposed to like, uh, you know, four years is like a good period of time. I feel <laughs> like Time to, like. to move on.
3: Is that what you're saying? No,
1: I think it's like a time to kind of like look back. It's a good chunk of time. On the management side of things, not just
3: editing stories, but like running and building this newsroom, like what have you learned a bunch of cliches probably, but just that like, it's so important to hire the best people and the difference between incredibly, between the absolute best, most driven people and the next tier is really large and having people, you know, I just feel like the the caliber of the, of the people we've been able to attract, you know, in part by saying what the internet wants now is big stories, breaking news, you know, the things the journalists want to do, not filler, not kind of aggregation is something that that really you know great journalists are motivated by and so i think people like like miriam elder like mark shoofs like catherine miller are just the absolute best in the game and that that in turn attracts the kind of the best jur- writers and i think and, and that i think like sort of really obsessing about how good the reporters and writers are we're attracting is really important what are you looking for how do you make that call on whether someone's in that first tier or way down in that second tier you know it's funny i, I well, uh, maybe this isn't a totally direct answer to the question, but sometimes journalism school, like, will bring their classes in, or or you'll talk to people who teach journalism and who ask sort of what skills we're looking for. And, and I'm really talking about reporters here. And we do a lot of different stuff at BuzzFeed. We make videos. We do a lot of entertainment content to which this doesn't this this particular thing doesn't apply. But they ask, like, what special skills or what traits are you looking for? And I think they expect the answer to be, like, well, I, we don't want people to be able to shoot video with their phones. And the thing is, like, anybody can shoot video with their phones. <laughs> and, like, certainly editing skills are important, but you can learn editing skills, video editing schools, skills. And anybody who is in college or in journalism school is on Snapchat, knows how to shoot video, is not going to learn in school how to shoot video, or maybe they will. But um, And I always say, like, you know, basically just raw aggression. Raw aggression is what you're looking for, basically. How do you find that in an interview? You know? Yeah, I don't. I'm not that into interviews. I mean, I think you you read people. I mean, the nice thing about this business is you can read people's is that you mm-hmm. the work is all exposed. You don't have to guess what somebody's writing is like. What does like raw aggression look like on the page? I mean, it means that you're breaking story, that you're breaking news, that you're getting stories other people haven't gotten. That you're. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the core of it, right? Yeah. And also understanding how to present them in a way that makes clear what the news is and how their news. It's sort of, it's a cousin to trolling. <laughs> wow. um, how close have these four years gone to what your expectation was when you took the job? You know, I don't, like, I mean, just totally different, or at least I don't know if different. I mean, I, I didn't have very clear expectations, I think. I mean, I, it was a political cycle, and I'm a political reporter, and thought, oh, I could, like, hire a few people, and we could cause some trouble in the campaigns. Mm-hmm. Like, we could do some good stories. We could make an impact. And I think Peter Kaplan had told me and had this theory that was was really smart about how every every campaign cycle, gosh, now I'm trying to remember if this was Peter's theory or Ken Lehrer's theory, I heard it from both of them, but um, how every campaign cycle kind of both defines and is defined by a, a new media organization, and that was maybe CNN in 96. It was ABC's The Note in 2004. It was um, Politico and Huffington Post in 2008. And then in 2012, there was an opportunity to, to be that and, and I kind of bought that and kind of saw it and thought like that could be us and so um, and had and had enjoyed it at Politico but definitely saw what we were doing primarily at first in terms of like okay we're gonna ha- we have this you know really popular amazing website that that the kind of political class/ elite are like either unaware of or mock that's a huge asset and then if you sort of yoke a political operation to that, you know, that that's a very powerful thing. And then it was like, and then sort of, I think, learned from, you know, some of those early folks that I hired, Dory Shafir and Matt Buchanan and others about, like, trying to figure out how to do that in spaces that I didn't know as well. Mm -hmm. I certainly had, you know, I talked to Jonah, like, wow, I think there's really a space, like, as everybody has pulled out all their foreign correspondents. And yet there's this incredibly vibrant social media conversation that includes, you know, diplomats and heads of state and policymakers and journalists around foreign policy and around world news. Like, that would be a cool space to go into. And I remember, like, at the end of maybe, end of 2012, him saying, like, oh, remember when we were talking about that to foreign correspondents? Let's do that. And I was like, mm-hmm. wait, really? <laughs> we can do that?
1: Once the election was done, then you were able
3: to start thinking about kind of, like, the wider array of opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I think we felt like we had a lot of momentum. I mean, you know, and we also have a really effective business side. And, you know, I mean, it's like... A lot, you know. I mean, there's no way we'd be able to do this so much work if the company wasn't thriving. How much do you think about the business side? It's not. It's not my expertise or what I spend most of my time doing. And certainly, like some of what I think about is like that. I'm somebody's like an advertiser is calling me and yelling at me, and I'm <laughs> saying sorry, nothing we can do here. But certainly, but but I also want it to be a successful business and want to do what I can to yeah. to make that happen. And so I do. I think I've, I've as we've grown, certainly thought about it more. Mm-hmm. When you, I'm sure got some like equity
1: when you took that job because it was a pretty early company and i was just wondering like
3: how much you're thinking about like buzzfeed's value as it's going out and raising money from i still investors. i still am not good at explaining that stuff to people it's just not what i spend my time thinking about they don't bring you to those pitch meetings i've been to a couple pitch meetings and i like you know do my part but i but i'm not going to explain to you uh I, when I was the, one of the most embarrassing things in my actually professional life, when I was a stringer for the Wall Street Journal in Eastern Europe, and I was stringing for the Wall Street Journal, I had gotten this job after a job at the Baltic Times, on my like, third day as a stringer for the Wall Street Journal, I had to call up my girlfriend who was working in finance and ask her what the word equity meant. <laughs> and she was like, wait, you work for the Wall Street Journal? <laughs> Don't ever tell anyone else that question. It's just you, me, and... <laughs>
1: Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second and tell you about a sponsor who's making today's show possible. That sponsor is Home Chef, and they can also make it possible for you to eat restaurant-quality meals at home super easily. They're going to send you fresh ingredients, step-by-step instructions. You can make every single one of their meals in under 30 minutes, uh, and it's healthy balanced here are a couple that you can try rustic vegetarian tart with spinach roasted red peppers and goat cheese they got a maple miso glazed salmon with Brussels sprouts and apple or a parisian bistro steak with creamy potatoes and green beans they got all the options you could ever want gluten-free vegetarian low-cal low-carb go to homechef.com slash long form that's homechef.com slash long form you get 20 bucks off your first order and you can start making these fantastic restaurant quality meals at home Start feeding yourself and your family better. Thanks, Home Chef. Let's get back to Ben Smith. I feel obliged to ask this since uh, this is the Long Form Podcast. How have the feature stories done for you guys? Like, Steve came on the show basically like the week he took
3: that job. In right? like late 2012, right? Yeah. I mean, that was another thing where it felt like, oh my God, we can actually do this. Like, it right. was after that first. And we we had published some certainly like long features, which I... and. And I remember actually Michael Hastings was like you got to hire a real editor. Michael was an amazing magazine writer who who died in 2013. But he would say like you got to get an editor here, like because I would be editing him, and I would just kind of like do a newspaper edit on it, which is you kind of brush it up and publish it, and there would be stuff in there. he's like I only put that in there for you to take it out like that's not even <laughs> you know that was just like bait for you to take that out so you wouldn't take this other thing out like he is coming from this very real editing process right that he I saw was, he
1: saw it as like the start of a long conversation, yeah, and I
3: was just publish it <laughs> um and and so he was among other people really on me to get to hire a real editor and and that was Steve um and I think you know that was another place where we felt like at the time, and this is less true than it was, but that, but we I still think there's just a huge space for it. That um, particularly at the time, though, there were two tracks for for long features. Uh, Steve said this thing that I love, which is that with the word long form, that the stress is on the wrong syllable, <laughs> because they don't have to be long. And the idea that length is a goal is just makes me crazy. Um, or that anybody looks around and says, you know what? I, I want to read something long today. It doesn't have to be interesting or good. It just has to be long. Like, there is for the no... record, I don't think anyone has ever said that. No, but I feel like the word and the st- emphasis on the first syllable implies that in some ways. I actually think that's a the stra- man argument. Or too. when I have writer writers sometimes say to you, what do you like to do? And I like to do long form. That's actually like a red flag for me. Really? Because it's like, well, I don't know. What story does do you have what, – what are you interested in that merits that length? like I want to break news. I want to like tell great stories. But if, you know, if you can tell if what's the famous Hemingway thing? Like if you I mean if you can tell a a really a story very powerfully and it can be short. That is preferable to telling the same story at 10,000 words. At the time on the internet there you could you there were basically two categories of of really long feature. One were beautifully crafted, you know, the writer got paid a lot, lots of money went into it maybe a year-long six-month editorial process in Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Great Magazines, that would then be put on the internet as an afterthought, if at all, like in some horribly unmanageable form where you had to keep clicking through or there were pop-ups or it wouldn't fit your screen. And then on the other hand, you would have things for which the writer had been paid $100 and had had not been edited at all, which were often things that had been submitted to process A and rejected and then kind of wound up on a website. Um, And there was nothing in the middle. Like there was nothing where a writer could be paid between like two and six thousand dollars and make a living, but not Vanity Fair money, and that would get really well edited, and wouldn't be subjected to all the craziness of magazines where a story might get bumped month after month because it because there's because it doesn't fit the mix of stories in that issue, mm-hmm. and where you have to where you can't be opportunistic and say shit let's publish this thing now because it's of the moment, but nope that's going in October, you know like. There were all these handicaps and expensive handicaps that came with the magazine process, and we felt like, "Wow, what if we could take the be- the best of that incredibly kind of rich, rigorous editing process, but ditch all the all the print-centric restrictions?" And that's really, and, and then and then be formally in formats. Just, I mean, in a sense, like at that time, it was pretty crazy just to not have page breaks, <laughs> right? But incredibly valuable. Yes. And take advantage of the other elements, you know, be able to see where on the page people are dropping off, not the, and you know be like, ah, oh, like this is it kind of got boring here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we've been really thrilled with everything Steve's done, and it's you know it's kind of grown as as we've grown, and and as also as we've hired more and more reporters, it's it's shifted. We still take freelance certainly, but we have more great staffers, to, you know, who are sometimes stepping out to write to write longer features. Yeah, it seems like there's when it started, it was kind of like I think it was. Thursday nights. Yeah, it's still Thursday nights. Thursday nights. <laughs> we're still publishing something Thursday nights, but it used to be. But essentially there's like four, or
1: five other things that
3: could be that week too. That sort yeah, of we're we're the ball. publishing a lot of big features right. and big investigations, so it's less. It, in a way, that was our version of a Sunday magazine, and it was mostly freelance. And now it's it's shifted a bit, and we're doing more of it, but also more in house because we just have all these these talented staffers. And we've definitely found also that. You, you know, the more you write for the internet, the more you learn about what the internet likes and what's going to work on the internet. And that's certainly true if you're publishing lists of, you know, GIFs of people running into walls, a genre that I love and appreciate. And it's also true if you're writing long features. And, and if you care about the data and care about figuring out why people are sharing stuff, you do learn a lot. And so having people who are doing it regularly for us, you know, there is an advantage there. What have you found about what works? Are there... Uh large conclusions you can draw after doing it for four years? You know, I mean, some, right? Like one of the things that works is novelty and surprise. And that's a hard thing to <laughs> replicate. But no, but I do think there are, you know, the stories people share and tend to be stories with a real emotional core, which is true of most good journalism, but not all. And I, th- I think there's a genre of magazine story that people actually don't really share that's like a perfectly very specific genre, which is um, like, here's something you will never see anybody tweet, great yarn. You ever seen me tweet? Great yarn link, and there's a kind of story that's about like a guy, about like men with guns who like running around, like maybe the middle of the country or maybe Florida, and they're like committing crimes, but they're kind of sympathetic, but they're like kind of goofy, and they are ultimately tragic figures and aren't really evil, but have maybe done some bad things, and like it kind of goes on and on. and It's kind of picaresque. And the characters are compelling and it has no point. But it's like, it's like a classic Magazine Well feature and nobody reads those on the internet. Huh. I'm surprised to hear you say that. I mean, it's just a fact. We've published our share of them. And I love that. I, you know, I, I will read them when I have a magazine in my hand. Oh, so you think people do read them in magazines? Uh, yeah, sure. I don't think it was there. a mistake for magazines to publish them. I think people just don't share them. Why? Because why would you share that? Like, it's not. People often share things because they have a point. Mm -hmm. Because they've like learned something they want to like, oh, my God, like this incredible feature we published this week about how black drug dealers are getting shut out of the legalized drug trade while white drug dealers are being included because of the way the legal system has screwed them. Like that was something where it's like, holy crap, look at this injustice. And that's a reason to share something. I think being moved by something or seeing yourself in it is a reason to share something. Just great story. This was a fun read. Mm-hmm. Tens is not is not a reason that people share things. Certainly, if you for me like as a reader, if you start reading it, you can totally just get trans, you know, incredible narrative and you know read to the and read it, scrolling on your phone, standing stock still on the street. And this kind of story does that. But I guess they don't. They don't. I guess it was I was wrong to say that nobody reads them on the internet. Nobody shares them. They don't travel. That distinction sounds totally right to me. I mean, I actually
1: you know happened to have like a pretty insane amount of data on this. Yes, and. The gap between what people actually read and what people share is immense.
3: I also think, though, that part of the reason that the stories don't travel is that they are consumed primarily by men and that women share more on Facebook in particular. And so stories that real that women don't share tend not to go anywhere. Hmm. Stories that women and men like do well, stories that women like do well, stories that are really, I mean, yeah, it's, And this is obviously a generalization and there's, there are differences, but Women have a lot of power in the distribution of content on the internet at the moment. That's interesting. And
1: that, I mean, though that like paint-by-numbers crime story that you just described, that's yeah, the, like, that's the straight, hallmark of the men's magazine. It's straight out of a
3: men's magazine, yeah. yeah. If you think about the magazine brands that have succeeded on the internet, you certainly see more women's than men's magazines. Like if I'm looking at like Snapchat Discover, you know, I think like you see these Hearst magazines really doing well. Yeah. Cosmo. Do you use Snapchat? Some. The problems with my, I like it. I, actually think it's, I mean, although it's like specifically designed for, to be like hard to figure out for people <laughs> over 20. I know I really like it, but like my friends don't use it. Like I'm old and my social graph doesn't use it. I feel like there are all these messaging services that I kind of love. Line actually is one and um, WhatsApp too. And because my sort of peers are like 40 year old Americans, they use text and nothing else. And so I can't get anybody to like come over to line with me. And so like... Like, <laughs> Stacey Maria Ishmael uses it, so, like, she and I will line occasionally, and that's about it. <laughs> so this third kind of writing you've been doing... The kind of like this is who we are. <laughs> no, no,
1: we, we can get off lost men. You didn't seem like you wanted okay, to talk okay. about no, lost I, I, No,
3: I know. I mean, I'm just need to, I'm sort of you know reckoning with my own <laughs> pattern that you've recognized. Uh, sorry, we can talk about that
1: later, or you can talk about that <laughs> with your therapist or whatever. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Uh, the other thing you've been talking about, and the long form thing fits. You wrote a real treatise about that. You've taken the art of like the public internal memo to a new place. I appreciate that. One question is just how you think about that and that idea of transparency for your internal communication?
3: I've always thought like the best way to communicate internally is to do it externally. It's sort of harder as you get bigger. I was trying for a while to do all my internal communications on Twitter, like in at replies, just because the thing is, or I mean, so first, like, I mean, just internally, like, I feel like it's really valuable if, if I'm having a conversation in the newsroom with somebody physically, and everybody who overhears it knows kind of what you're thinking and knows how you're thinking and how we're approaching stories, and that's a really valuable way to communicate. And when we were a small number of people in New York, a very effective way to manage, and that is no longer true. And, and how, to do, how to have that sort of expose your internal conversations to everybody in the company and to do it globally is tricky. And so that's, I think that's one of the reasons. And I do think people are in some ways more likely to read something if it's published. Mm-hmm. I mean, you in, mean it, your people are more likely yeah, to read Yeah, I think it. people inside an organization in a strange way are, are in some ways more likely to read something if it's published than if it's one of a stream of internal emails that they're getting. Does that philosophy carry over to other parts of managing like a large news operation? I don't know. You don't – there's no – I mean, there's no point trying to keep secrets from reporters. (laughs) I mean, mean, there's – I think that, yeah, the more more that you can expose sort of – I mean, obviously, there are – we have this story coming. We're not going to tell you about it sort of secrets. But – I mean, it also does allow readers and your staff to hold you to whatever you're trying to say, and it forces you to aspire to whatever you actually want to be, if that's what you're saying.
1: which is especially important when you're trying to figure out who you are
3: and what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. Although, yes, absolutely. For sure, except what? Well, I mean, I I guess I'm getting a little abstract here, but you also can get boxed in by public pronouncements. And that's something that I also think about a little bit. Have you bit. gotten bitten by that? Um, no, actually, but it's something that I sort of occasionally have in the back of my head. If you know, we're, if you say, well, we're going to do X, you then do find yourself thinking you ought to do X. It was interesting too, like when that gawker got, went after you guys for the Pepsi thing. Yeah, for deleting a couple of posts. I mean, that was definitely a place where we were like held to our, appropriately actually, held to our own standards. But I was sort of glad we were. I mean, in a way, that's what you have these standards for so people can hold you to them. And that, for me, was a real learning experience where I'm like, okay, we, this is no longer a small place where I should be like acting unilaterally. This is a place where we have a lot of people and rules, and we all need to follow them. And people paying attention. But it seemed to me like
1: even the fallout from that and how you dealt with it was to try and be as transparent as possible. Like like you invited Gawker to your office and had an interview, and they published
3: like a pretty unedited version of that interview about it yeah absolutely I mean I th- I, yeah that's I guess that's sort of the only way we know how to operate, yeah I mean, I guess i we're learning like I'm learning like at what at some point are you such a big company that you just have to like retreat into sort of like weird corporate silence? I don't know, we're not there yet <laughs> <laughs> well I mean, you you guys are pretty big if you haven't gotten there yet, maybe
1: you don't have to, yeah, hopefully not. I want to read your definition of um diversity quickly, oh sure and yeah. and I'm interested in talking about that. BuzzFeed's working definition of diversity is this. Enough people of a particular group that no one person has to represent the supposed viewpoint of their group, whether ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, religion, gender identity, socioeconomic background, or disability. And if the group is a small one, we should never expect one person to be the diverse reporter or writer or to speak for anyone other than themselves. It's a pretty good definition. Thanks. You have this explanation uh, of
3: of your diversity policy. And what follows is basically a business case for diversity I think there are a lot of different cases but there is certainly a business case and I do think business I do think that like I mean most industries but like certainly the media industry have always had this kind of um, high-minded and authentic liberal hope and commitment in some theoretical sense to diversity and have wanted to be diverse places because they make because you know because they believe in it and I think it's that has not proven to be totally effective as a way to get things done. And I think, you know, just their, the way the media has changed and the way the country has changed make it just like really sort of vital. How so? I mean, just try and explain the way that you think about it. In that piece, I sort of laid out several reasons and I will now, a la Rick Perry, forget one of them. <laughs> well, they're, I mean, they're the traditional ones. When you approach a story, you bring all the your personal sort of baggage and History and language skills and perspective to a story, and having people coming from different places around any story is important. But I do think that on on the that's always been true of reporting, and is you know truer and truer as the country becomes more diverse domestically. Um, but I also think that the way the internet is structured is just deeply different from the way a, a print publication is structured. And if you have a magazine or newspaper. You spend a lot of time thinking about your sort of median reader, like maybe it's your magazine whose median readers are women 37 to 40 in metro areas with an income of X who are professionals. And if you're a big metro newspaper, you're thinking about the educated professionals in your metro area or you know, whatever it is. And I think that when you're online, it's each story is a magazine. Each story is its own publication, each story has its own audience, and you're thinking more and if you want to reach a mass US audience, which we certainly do and are. You don't reach people necessarily by finding the lowest common denominator. Sometimes you reach them by finding the thing everybody has in common. Everybody is outraged by certain kinds of abuse. Everybody cares about cute animals. Like they're universalizing things. And that's one way that you reach a mass audience and certainly one way we do. But the other way, which is something that isn't available to print publications, is that you do stories that that, that only some people care a lot about. You know, whether it's people who care about transgender rights or whether it's people who... You know, which, which, that's something where, an, you know, a big story that is about a, a major outrage is interesting to everybody, but a scoop about the legal advances in that area might not be. Um, you know, or Samir was did right, this amazing thing about, that really sort of showed this to me in some ways about growing up Persian in the United States, like things you only know if you grew up Persian. I think the deck was in Farsi, and, you know, parts of it were incomprehensible to me, but also it's sort of interesting to get a glimpse into somebody else's, you know, childhood, but it was, I think, it was shared very, very widely in a community that was saying, like, oh, wow, like, this is really about, like, this This is a publication that really understands Persian Americans, and I wonder what else they do. You know, I mean, that's sort of a nice way to introduce ourselves to people. I don't know, we did a How Bougie Are You quiz that, again, I may not have totally understood every bit of, but, you know, went really big for black readers. And I think, you know, I think to have the freedom to say that, that not every piece is for the 51% majority of our readers, however we define that, but that we can really write for a Latino audience, for a black audience in a very direct way. And we're not thinking about who is the BuzzFeed reader, who is the median reader, who is, what's the average reader, that that's not what we're, with every piece sort of trying to target, is pretty powerful.
1: Why do you think more places don't think of it that way? I mean, you know, I had, uh, Heaven and Tracy were in here, Oh Yeah, that was a great interview. <laughs> oh, my
3: God, that anecdote Tracy told about our uncomfortable first lunch <laughs> of her terrible pizza was, like, just so totally accurate. But
1: wish pe- I wish ex- people could see how much exc- you're cringing right excruciating now.
3: excruciating to listen to. And I definitely did take her phone and read all the – she had. She told me she had all these story ideas on her phone, and I did – it's like a classic thing I would do, just, like, take her phone and read them. Um, but they were really good ideas. Uh, yeah, well, she's real good. But
1: they did this thing where they asked – you know, a bunch of editors, a bunch of magazines about diversity and tried to get their definition of what diversity was. And a lot of it
3: seemed to be that people were really uncomfortable even talking about it. I mean, I think like liberal white people in America are really uncomfortable talking about race is certainly true. And I do think having a, being able to to have open internal conversations about race where people aren't totally on eggshells, where people feel like they're not immediately to be pounced on. I mean, I think like the two dynamics that like shape a lot of American conversations about race are to some degree white people thinking that they'll be accused of being racist and, and, and tiptoeing and being terrified of that. But I think even more so people of color worrying that they will be taken to be accusing someone of a racist if they say something critical, you know, and I think having a space where it's like, no, you can be critical without the other person becoming totally immediately defensive is mm-hmm. important. And But I think that's tricky. I mean, it's like tricky even to talk about. It's so easy to feel defensive about it and or and or to like hurt your career or, you know, sort of be and I think we've tried really hard to cultivate an internal environment where people feel like they can talk freely and and, and where they can discuss these things. So before this job, this BuzzFeed job, you were a uh, you were a political reporter. Yes.
1: Political blogger. For
3: like what, ten years? I started writing about politics in O one, about US politics, and I started my blog in O four.
1: I have some just like very basic, we've not had a lot of political reporters on the show, and I have some uh, very basic how to be a political reporter mm, questions. Yeah, Here's the first question. How do you develop
3: sources as a political reporter? I mean, you go to bars and have drinks with people. I mean, in the very traditional way, right? I mean, also though, I think one of the things when when you're, I mean, there's a a commerce in information. You trade in for, I mean, particularly before the blog, you would sort of trade information with sources. Hey, I heard this. What have you heard? And and then you would use that to try to build up to a story. And with the blog, it was like you were, it was like, oh, I'll just put all this out there and then people will feel that I have been giving them information and they will give me information back in sort of a free way. And you were one of the kind of early people to do that, right? Like kind of break
1: that rule a little bit.
3: Yeah, I had been spent 04 at the New York Observer reading these political blogs like Josh Marshall's and Andrew Sullivan's and some others and being kind of obsessed with them. And, you know, for the and these um, little green footballs, these conservative blogs had a huge impact and thinking, wow, I wish there was one in New York because I was a local reporter in New York and so started the first local one. And I think that was a moment when it seemed weird that you would take the tools of blogging like reverse cron publishing and doing it really fast and without an editor and but, but, with the sort of values of traditional reporting, mm-hmm. and the observer had this nice line between opinion and sensibility, and that you could sort of have a sensibility without necessarily having an opinion and I felt like there was a space where you could have a sort of bloggy voice and a sensibility but but be fair and and be professional. did you always have good fingertips for that like transactional nature of information?
1: Like, I remember going out on stories when I was like a very young reporter, and like
3: People were trying to like uh, feed me things, and I didn't realize it. Yeah, no. I know? Guess inside politics, there's this whole permanent infrastructure of sources and transactions and stuff. And then there are a lot of good. You get a lot of good information. I mean, the thing is, about information is who cares where you got it, right? I mean, if it's true, it's either true or it's not, and you should publish it. It's important or it's useful that you don't always know to understand the motive of the person giving you the information. But I don't. I kind of reject the idea that the motive taints the information. Mm-hmm. You know, which is sort of the old criticism of opposition research. And, and there is a risk that you're being used by people. And then, of course, the best stories are the ones that like totally screw up that, that like <laughs> just mess that system up. That like so, that somehow like blow the whole thing up or cut against it in some way that is really that makes a lot of trouble.
1: How so? Like, what what are you thinking when you say that? What, um,
3: what's a story that made trouble in that way? I mean, I guess that Times story, right? Like, like there had been this carefully negotiated off-the-record thing right. between Trump and Times. and The only thing they didn't, that perhaps was not considered, was that there were these were human beings who might leak the fact of an off-the-record recording, and then, and you know, and that Trump himself, if he wanted, could, li- could at least try to lift the off-the-record. And would he? And you can sort of suddenly, that whole hermetic little moment right. breaks. You could basically just by exposing the deal. Uh, you can break the deal. Or you, can, or you can put an enormous amount of pressure on what had seemed like a stable situation. I think good reporting often does that. Are you still engaged in that kind of reporting? I mean, here you've got your next election. I mean, but, no, mostly I am like watching the reporters on our team with awe. Like, you know, Rosie Gray and McKay Coffman just had, did so much good reporting about Breitbart over the last week and, you know, got all these screenshots of their Slack conversation <laughs> stuff. Andrew Kaczynski every day is is blowing stuff up. Adrian Carrasquillo is sort of dug into Latino politics the way I always like, I never got as deep as he did, but like in terms of like trying to dig into Jewish politics, which is sort of what I grew up in a Mm -hmm. little, and like, and then you can, if you sort of dig into a a niche, and that's a bigger niche, and, you know, politics is composed of these elements, and if you can kind of take over one and own it, and be the go-to reporter for it, you break news of importance to that community, and then also just news that's all, you're just breaking news all over the place. And watching Adrian do that has been so fun. And not, and, and mostly I just kind of like, you know, enjoy that and, and get to kind of like live in their reflected glory. <laughs> Seems like... um Delighting in living in your employees' reflected glory is like a pretty good. uh, Yeah, you have to be. I do think that's pretty important to be able to enjoy that. It turns out, and I do. Yeah, like you don't feel jealous of people being out on the campaign trail. Like, do you miss that? Oh yeah, totally. And I got to go out to Iowa, and that was a lot of fun. But I mean, mostly I like will be like mumbling things to Catherine Miller, the political editor, and she'll be like, "No, no, we're like we're on that. We already made that call. Stop." (laughs) Got it. So you know, like um, uh,
1: you know, Obama has that whole line about like. All I do all day is just make the hardest
3: decisions. Like, I just make the 51, 49 decisions all day. You like asked me if I, de- if I identify with that. <laughs> no. That would, my, my ego hasn't gotten quite there. I was
1: going to ask you, what are the decisions that you're making all day?
3: If you came four years ago right. to define how BuzzFeed was going to cover an election, and now you've got a team of people who know what yeah, they're doing. It- I mean, I think like most of the most important decisions are the longer term ones, like the decisions to hire Catherine and to structure the team in a way that was, you know, to a large extent her idea, but also mine and Shawnee's. And, and then, you know, these are decisions that you have to kind of stick with and watch them play out. So in terms of politics, like, you're right. I think a lot of the decisions I make are, are sort of, you know, bets that you have to sort of stick with and, and, and then stand by your people and, and watch them play out. Um and so in a way, right, the most important decisions are decisions about hiring people and about sort of structuring your resources. But then I think I also get very involved in in sort of frame, in decisions around how to frame and time stories. Like, I think that's something that I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at. Mm-hmm. Um, if, even if I'm not great at editing 5,000 word stories. Do you spend a lot of time thinking about culture? More than I would have thought. I mean, I came from a, I've worked in bureaus and out on my own in Brooklyn and not ever really been in in the main newsroom. I've been like the city hall desk and the culture of those sort of shared press rooms is its own weird thing where you learn how to talk on the phone without anybody knowing what you're talking about and stuff. And so the journalists I'd been close to were mostly competitors, not colleagues. But actually, I now do spend a lot of time thinking about culture and it matters a lot. And I think the you know, one of the things, the really nice things about BuzzFeed's internal culture is that, I don't know, I have a lot of admiration for the people who do things that I'm not as good at. Like, I have done some, like, posts about identity and lists and fun and non-news stuff, but I find that harder. Although, I hope you will read my my list of things you only know when you're a geocacher. We'll put, um, we'll put in the show but, uh, notes. Yeah. But, um, but I find that stuff, you know, and, and I think that, like, there is an internal culture of, like, respect, uh, in which... The folks who are doing the kind of stuff that gets you on podcasts like this and that gets external recognition, that gets fancy, you know, four syllable words like journalism thrown at it, um, have a lot of respect for the people who are making really amazing entertainment, and vice versa. And that's and that's a cultural thing that I care a lot about. Just that, that like you know, Jen Lewis has made these unbelievable kind of vines about Donald Trump that are just like so hilarious, and she's just like this brilliant illustrator basically, and that. I think we have a culture of treating entertainment with a lot of respect, and I think that a lot of people who come from news don't, and that that's a big, that, that that, that you know, both the, the content, of course, but also that culture is a real asset.
1: One thing that seems distinctive to me about what you guys have built is that people seem to ride for the place in a way that I don't see people doing at other places often. So, like, when BuzzFeed does something big, like that uh, tennis investigation, it's like, Everyone I know who works
3: there is like... I know, and people like tweets it immediately and people think like, is this like a strategy? And I love the extent to which people are, are really invested in their colleagues' work. I mean, I do think it is about that rather than about us being like, all right, at, at 11.30 p.m., you will all tweet this <laughs> with this language. <laughs> it doesn't seem that coordinated, but it does have this air of
1: like a um, uh, scrappy underdog to be. Like, we need
3: to, we
1: need to ride for this thing. This thing
3: needs... Well, we are scrappy underdogs. I mean, we're a lot smaller than like CBS News and NBC News and the New York Times. Yeah, but you're no... And Viacom. Okay, so if if your answer to we are scrappy underdogs, because look at Viacom. I think that's a reasonable answer.
1: Well, it says a lot about the ambitions for the place. Yeah, I think Yeah, that's true. That's not who you would have been comparing yourself to four years ago.
3: It's probably who Jonah would have been comparing (laughs) us to, but nobody would have believed him. (laughs) But that's where you think of – like when you think of competition now, that's what you see as competition I as mean, Viacom? I think you're competing with everybody all the time, right? Like we do lots of different things and we have – and so each person at the company is to some degree competing with a different place. Like I don't think there's one – yeah, we have reporters who feel like they're competing every day with a guy from The Washington Post or the woman from The Times and 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 writers who are feel like they're competing much more with entertainment. Companies or in mm-hmm. people making videos, and the, the viewer of that video is choosing between something made by Disney and something made by BuzzFeed. Sure. Are you like an inherently competitive person? Yeah. Oh yeah. How does that manifest itself outside of journalism? I mean, I, did, I well, I limped over here because yeah. I hurt myself playing tennis with my kid. Yeah, I don't know. I tr- I just tend to be pretty competitive. about Do things you not I let do. your kid win in tennis? I do let him win, and I'm, it's, it's increasingly, he's it's not a matter of letting him. <laughs> It seems like throughout your
1: career, you sort of like tried to run at open spaces. So like, there wasn't a New York City political blog. You did that. You were like early at Politico. You saw like an opening to cover the twenty twelve election. Even like the conversation we were having about long form and how you were thinking of that, like finding that middle ground. Where do you see like the next hole? What What's the next? I place mean, there are always a lot of them. I
3: think I think some of the video stuff that we and Zay Frank are doing out of LA are definitely kind of running into an open space. Um, that I don't know if you've seen Tasty. This food video and and this new one, nifty, which is amazing and DIY, and those feel like again like that like have that sort of potential. I mean, for me, the thing that is most that feels like a place where we are running into that is 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 international. Like we have an incredible team in London. Um, We have really strong teams in places like Paris and São Paulo, where I'm actually going on on Sunday (laughs) um, to hire a news editor. And I think like both building real news operations you know, around some of the stuff we've learned in New York, but also with really strong local people who are bringing their own media traditions in is a huge opportunity for us. Um, and that's something. And, and then also we've seen the extent to which having this global network is incredibly powerful and having strong editors, you know, in Paris when those attacks happen. Or alternately, you know, when, when we um, break, break news about Twitter from our very strong San Francisco bureau uh, to have Alex Kantrowitz's story immediately translated into Japanese and go totally nuts on Japanese Twitter. It was really interesting and fun. And we, it just feels like there are huge opportunities there for us that, were really, that are really interesting to pursue. How did Twitter change your life? You know, a lot. Like it's, I mean, it, it basically, well, the thing is, it basically killed the blogs. Like, it, the, the kind of political blog I had been writing through 2008 was swallowed by Twitter, and then I, as was I. I mean, that's really <laughs> the answer to that. That they, I mean, in some sense, there had always been this inside political conversation that had been the boys on the bus in the 70s and conducted on the telephone and in emails and in like inside dope political columns and that then moved to to the blogs and then and then very much to Twitter. Are you on it all the time? Yeah, but I, I, I am liking it less. I mean, it's, not, it's just not as fun a place as it was. I feel like I'm not like meeting interesting people there as much anymore. Do you think that's because people are just like crafting themselves on there more than they used to be? I don't really know why. It feels I think everyone like a lot of people who adore Twitter are also a little tired of Twitter. I think they they're struggling to balance um you know these like very hard old questions about uh speech versus harassment and you know the the level of harassment on there is so awful and then they and they have to very it's very difficult I think to how do you they they obviously just need to figure out a way to to make it a safer place but then you know when when the Republican presidential candidate is out there saying stuff that might, in theory, get you banned under some rule, like you obviously don't want to be banning important political speakers. I mean, how do you balance that? I think those are very hard questions. <laughs> It'd be pretty amazing if they banned Trump.
1: Did you see this coming?
3: No, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you've covered New York politics in New York, do you, th- you think of Trump as a joke. Like people in business in New York think he is a joke. He's not a real businessman. He plays people who are in business think of Trump as somebody who plays them on television and like badly Mm -hmm. and are embarrassed by him. And so and he's talked about running forever and everyone's always laughed at him. And we wrote a McKay cop and sort of brilliant piece that sort of about that, about his sort of neurosis and insecurity and the it's absurdity an of, it's a really an amazing read, the absurdity of of why he was running that I think that really got under his skin. He fired the guy who set it up and I think was one in a series of humiliations that prompted him to run. Has he dealt with you guys at all? Uh, well, he trashed us from a de- the debate stage, which was pretty great. <laughs> he refuses to talk to us, but he is forced constantly to respond to our reporting. Mm-hmm. Those political fights that
1: like back and forth... Do you ever take that personally? Like, when, even back when you were blogging and stuff, like, did it ever feel personal or did it always feel like a game to you?
3: Oh, yeah. No, I think, I mean, anybody, I feel like anybody who's been on social media and had somebody attack them very intensely, well, sometimes it just gets so far under your skin. Suddenly, like, your heart is racing and you're sweating and you're like, oh, and, you know. And I think I have, like, a very thick skin and have partly just because I've been through so many cycles of this. Uh-huh. But, yeah, there's no way to not take it personally. Sometimes, I mean, it is personal. Have you always had a thick skin, though? I think it's something you develop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Actual last question. I feel like I've said that to you like four times, but this is the actual well, last I've question. Called,
3: now I've actually called the Uber. So. <laughs> All
1: right. Okay. We're done. Except that, um, here's my question, and it's uh, along the lines of the thing that you seemed most eager to talk about in this interview, which is the, like, um, Max reads your writing and tries to figure out your psychology part of it. Oh, yeah. These, like, disappearing men stories. Do you have some fear that this stuff is going to pass you by.
3: No, I don't think it's something that I spend my time thinking about or worrying about. I mean, I do think that at any point in this kind of media environment, or at least in the media environment of the last 10 years, you have the opportunity slash risk of just like leaving it. It's just changing so fast. And and I think actually, I I think that you see (laughs) Lost Men, you see that with Jeb Bush. He's a guy who sort of stepped out of, in politics, he's the media, there's no real difference. He stepped out of a political media environment in the early 2000s and came back to what he thought was the same environment. It was just totally changed. He was a visitor from a a lost world. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think, it's not something that I like fear. I mean, it's definitely something that some days sounds kind of (laughs) nice. There's something kind of appealing to that? Yeah, for sure. Getting off the race. Ben, thanks a lot. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our intern this week was Courtney Harrell. The show was brought to you by MailChimp, Harry's, and Home Chef. Start making restaurant-quality meals at home in under 30 minutes. Go to homechef.com slash longform. You get 20 bucks off your first purchase. Thanks very much, of course, to Ben Smith for taking the time. to tell you guys, he limped into this office. It was a trek to come to Dumbo, and I appreciate it. We'll see you next week.